0: With a uh, dilemma that took place on Sesame Street. As uh, as you n- may know, each episode is said by the way just for my own dignity. Um, if you didn't know, I do have four kids. I, I don't I didn't want you to think that I consume Sesame Street as my entertainment at this age. I have four children and so I'm very familiar with Sesame Street. If you're not familiar with Sesame Street, each episode uh, focuses on a different letter. And um, I was watching an episode with one of my sons, and the episode was all about the very tragic and sad plight of the letter Y. Letter Y was having a real bad day, and it all surrounded his purpose in life. And so he brings what can only be called an existential crisis to Elmo, and through tears, he says to Elmo, I know that I'm a Y, but why am I a Y? Sesame Street introducing the youth of our culture, to existential dread. I know that I'm a why, but why am I a why? It's actually a profound question. And I think it's a question many Christians struggle with. I know that I'm a Christian, but why am I a Christian? Of course, the easy answer is the glory of God. That's the go-to. But how does that lofty statement play out in the practicalities of our lives? In our passage, Jesus is going to answer that very question for us. And he's going to do so by answering two questions. I know that I'm a why, but why am I a why? Well, who are you and why are you? Let's find out. Who are you? A lot of talk about choosing, finding our own identity these days. But notice for the followers of Jesus, he gets to make that choice for us. Twice he says, you are, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. So he defines who we are by our relationship to the world, salt of the earth, light of the world. And that imagery shows us how Jesus views our world. The world, according to Jesus, is decaying and dark, decaying and in need of salt, salt in that time was less uh, a seasoning as much as it was a preserving agent to prevent decay in food. So, he views the world as decaying and in need of salt and dark and in need of light. And can you really disagree with him? I think we all would agree that the world is an amazing place, worthy of enjoyment and celebration, but we cannot ignore its cursedness either. Its goodness has been violated. By violence, prejudice, perverseness, brokenheartedness, sickness, and of course the ultimate display of decay and darkness, death. Jesus is not content with the way things are. In fact, he has come from heaven to fix it. But what is his plan to fix the world? Well, according to our passage, it seems to be you. Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You, your life, is the Savior's strategy to make the world right again. And the reason I'm belaboring that simple point is because God's people are always tempted to redefine the Savior's strategy away from the simplicity of its plan and make it more complicated than it needs to be. And this is certainly true of American Christianity. For example, we have tried to nationalize his strategy. Christian nationalism is getting a lot of attention these days, but it it's been in the DNA of American Christianity from the beginning. Some of you may know my uh, doctoral studies are on religion in the founding era, and when you read the writings of Christian founders, they are replete with Christian nationalism, viewing America with a millennial destiny that will usher in the kingdom of God. More recently, the Relationship between Christians and Trump has obviously received a lot of criticism, and rightfully so, but President Biden, in his speech about the Afghanistan withdrawal, said this, quote, when the Lord says, who shall I send, the American military has been answering for a long time, here I am, Lord, send me. So famous conversation between God and the prophet Isaiah, but with American military inserted into that call. Speaking of our passage, Ronald Reagan, he of the right, JFK, he of the left, both invoked this very text, only with America substituted for the followers of Jesus, calling our nation a city on the hill. Okay, so just so we're clear about our passage, America is not the city on a hill that Jesus is speaking of here. It's a wonderful country. I love living here. But it is not Christ's strategy to fix the world, nor is any country or political system of this world. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Another strategy we tried is a celebrity strategy. Christians have always been tempted to place their leaders on a pedestal, but now technology, social media, the conference culture has taken things to another level. And in this way, the celebrity pastor is looked to as the light of the world. Their voice is not equipping the saints to do the work of ministry, as Paul says. Instead, their voice is the work of ministry. In the past, it was just get as many people to a Billy Graham crusade as possible. Now, it's just get as many people exposed to your favorite preachers' podcasts, writings, sermons, and so forth. Now, again, I thank God for these leaders and their unique role within the body of Christ, but their platform is not the light of the world. Jesus says, you. Are the light of the world. More recently, I've noticed the church trying the sociology strategy. Social theories that used to be debated in the Academy, as you know, have gone mainstream. I see a lot of Christians constructing their hope for a better world around these social ideas and concepts. I'm not saying we don't have a lot to learn from academic social theories and the common grace truth that we find within them, but let us never forget that sociology is not the light of the world. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. I think you get my point. We are constantly trying to reinvent Christ's strategy in this world, when in reality, it's quite simple. It happens to be you. You, dear saints of the Lord, are his plan to fix the world. And to him, it's not optional. You are this, whether you want to be this or not. Listen to the severity of his language in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Can I translate his words in a brutally honest way for us this morning? Jesus says, if you are not acting like this, you're good for nothing. That's what he says, literally. If the salt isn't salty, it is no longer good for anything. Now, as he often does, Jesus is using hyperbole to make a point. And here's what his hyperbole is emphasizing to us. You cannot be someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus in this world and yet disinterested and disengaged from how Jesus defines your relationship to this world. That cannot be. A person like that is a living contradiction. We don't choose to get involved in his redemptive project. He has made that choice for us. To belong to him is to be involved in his purposes for the world. Simply put, you can't give your life to Jesus and not give your life for Jesus. Therefore, if you are not giving your life for Jesus, then it brings into question whether you have given your life to Jesus at all. I know That might be a troubling statement to some, but perhaps we need to be troubled. Perhaps we have been going about Christianity as if it's a religious accessory to my life, just my get out of hell card and get me to heaven, without determining the very purpose of my days on earth. If so, then you need to know you have profoundly misunderstood Jesus. He wants you. But he will have you on his terms. And his terms is that your life in this world now exists for his purposes in this world. But I would suggest that makes the call to follow Jesus much more exciting. If you're checking out Christianity or even skeptical about Christianity, you must admit that this is far more compelling than boring old religion that just wants you to clean your act up. This is not the invitation of Jesus. Yes, Jesus saves you, but even more than your personal salvation, Jesus says, come follow me in the name of global salvation. My following is fixing the world, and your life can be an important part of that project. You see, this is what I know about everyone, follower of Jesus or not. You want a better world. And in this, we find agreement. But have you noticed... The way our world tries to improve itself always proves counterproductive in the end. The great project over the last century, the great project of secularism over the past century rested on the notion that if we could just replace religious superstition with enlightenment and development, this will fix the world. We'll just educate our world out of its problems. And yet, what did the refined 20th century give us? according to British historian Eric Hosburn, the most violent century in our world's history. Nearly an entire century of unbroken war, 187 million deaths, approximately 10 percent of the world's population at the beginning of the 20th century died from violence by the end of the century. Behold the alleged success of secularity. But in contrast, another British historian, Tom Holland, who's an atheist himself, but he has demonstrated Christianity is a two-millennial revolution that has and is remaking the world for better. I'm not implying that the Christian revolution that began here at the Sermon on the Mount has not been a complicated one. It includes the Crusades, for example. And yet, despite its notable failures, the following of Jesus as a collective whole has proven to be the greatest force of good our world has ever known. So yes, we must admit that Christians were slave owners. And yet at the same time, we must admit that it was Christianity that brought abolition and emancipation to the world that up until that point couldn't conceive of a social order without slavery. And so the point I'm making, I suppose the invitation I'm proposing, is not just that Jesus wants to save you, though he certainly does, but even more, Jesus is saving the world. And he wants to use your life as an important part of that global project. And the point for us as followers is that this redemptive project is not optional for our lives. Our identity in this world is bound to his purposes for this world. So who are you? You are salt and light. Now let's answer the second question. Why are you? Again, salt was a preserving agent, and this is something that was on or even infused into foods. So obviously we have to be in and among the world if we are going to be salt. And yet at the same time, you are light in this dark world. A profound distinctiveness about your life must be there, a stark contrast. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. The point of the imagery is that our lives must be unmistakably different. So bringing the images together, we live our lives in and among the world, but in unique and distinct ways. We can't retreat from the world, nor can we become like the world. Instead, we are witnesses within the world of another world, and that world is the kingdom of God. There's a reason why this, passage immediately follows the Beatitudes. The message is this, becoming a people who embody the Beatitudes, these kingdom virtues that we've been discussing for a couple months, this is what our world needs. The world is desperate for the poor in spirit, the meek, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and so forth. And Jesus is saying, my people are called to be that for the world. That's why you exist. Let me illustrate what I mean by returning to the letter Y. Elmo and letter Y went on this quest to discover why he was a Y. And what happens is they run into broken words, words like ack and "ogurt" and elo. And suddenly, the Y discovers why he is a Y. He joins these broken wor- words and fixes them. Ack becomes yak. Ogre becomes yogurt, yellow becomes yellow, and there is great rejoicing on Sesame Street. That's what we are in this broken world. Not broken words, but broken stories, broken institutions, broken societies. And as salt and light, we are what the world is missing. And what the world is missing is the Beatitudes. So what this means is that the Beatitudes are decisively missional. We go out and invade this world with another world, a better world, a world that we are desperate to recapture. Let's localize this. What does it mean when we say we exist for the good of the bluegrass? What that means is we are colonizing the bluegrass for the good, the, the good kind of colonization. We are not taking what doesn't belong to us. We are reclaiming what rightly, rightfully belongs to Jesus. And we do this by colonizing the bluegrass with the Beatitudes. It's not a complicated strategy. You do what God has called you to do while being who God has called you to be. So whether it's education, arts, finance, medicine, administration, carpentry, parenting, school, as a student, you do what God has gifted and called you to do, but you do it the Beatitude way. You do it how Jesus would do it, were he living out your calling. Because via his Holy Spirit, that's exactly what is taking place. You enact your life under the Lordship of Jesus. And in this way, you make a profound declaration that this little nook of creation entrusted to you now belongs to Jesus. Does that not renew excitement for your seemingly mundane life? To know that everything you do all day long matters because it's just one occasion after another to redeem that moment, that space, that occasion for Jesus. The world may not even notice. In fact, most often our efforts do go unnoticed. Do you notice light? At times, but you really notice it when it isn't there. Jesus says, You put a light on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. You may not notice the lamps in your house, but you really notice it when the power goes out. When we say we exist for the good of the bluegrass, what we are saying is that we exist to be a faithful presence of God's kingdom in this community. A continual presence of preserving salt, a continual presence of illuminating light, perhaps unnoticed by the bluegrass. But if TCPC shut her doors and turned off the lights tomorrow, the bluegrass would notice her absence and be worse for it. And yet there's one last step to our purpose here that we dare not neglect. Look at verse 16. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is very clear. The final fulfillment of why we are in this world, is others giving glory to God. The end goal is not the improvement of the bluegrass. It is the worship of bluegrass. We are, not, we are not just religious moralists trying to improve the behavior of the bluegrass. We are not just social activists trying to improve the conditions of the bluegrass. We are missionaries seeking to improve the worship of the bluegrass. So what this means is that conversion to Christ and his kingdom is the highest ambition and ultimate fulfillment of our calling. Our lives are not just a witness to the kingdom of God. Our lives are summons into the kingdom of God. They see our good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That is conversion. That is people who once were at enmity with God, but now because of your life, give glory to God. I celebrate the reorientation of evangelical culture, where once again justice and mercy are receiving the prominence they deserve, it is true Christians are not merely evangelists, feeding the hungry, welcoming the outcast, freeing the oppressed, caring for a widowed and orphan, uh, correcting injustice with justice. These are not ancillaries to the Christian life; they are at the heart of the Christian life, and yet. We must maintain a both-and approach to that which has traditionally been pitted against one another, the works of justice and the work of evangelism. We don't have to choose. In fact, to choose is to compromise the other. Notice Jesus says, see your good deeds and give glory to the Father. Do you see how interconnected he views these two? To him, good deeds... And conversion of the lost are inextricably related. And this is true. You see, to neglect good deeds in favor of evangelism is counterproductive to evangelism. Because the good deeds of Christianity has always been the church's greatest apologetic in the world. Historically speaking, what people have found most compelling about Christianity is not our reasoned argumentation, but our virtuous practices. People want to follow the Savior whose following is fixing the world. Thus, they see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. And yet at the same time, Jesus is clear that good deeds at the exclusion of evangelism is also counterproductive to good deeds. Because the ultimate good deed is conversion to the good news. There is no greater act of mercy than people discovering the saving mercy of God. And so when it comes to salt and light in this world, is it good deeds Or evangelism? The answer is yes. Jesus will not let us choose. And Jesus himself shows us how this works. That people might see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. That finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. In whom we see the greatest good deed. For what good deed can compare to a Savior hanging from a cross for our bad deeds? We see him crucified. And that eternally significant good deed has led to countless people throughout the ages giving glory to the Father in heaven. And then his body was laid to rest in a tomb. Salt prevents decay. Light expels darkness. Well, there is no salt or light in a tomb. The home of decay and darkness. But not his tomb. Where there should be decay his body comes back to life. Where there should be darkness, the stone is rolled away. And out of that tomb begins a conquest of salt and light, and to us in our day, that conquest has been entrusted to you. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, all of this is not hopeless idealism. I know you are tempted to think that fixing this profoundly broken world is impossible, but is it more impossible than Jesus walking out of his own grave? It began with the resurrection of one man, and it will end with the resurrection of all things. A new world will be upon us with no need for salt or light because it will never again know decay or darkness. Let's do our small part as salt and light in our moment. Let's do our part in getting our world one step closer to its destiny. Let me pray. But Father, thank you for this challenge, this correction. Would your grace now empower us? Thank you, Lord, as we come to this, se- this table uh, celebrating your ultimate good deed, which has brought honor and glory to Father in heaven. Would you feed us with that news so that we are so overwhelmed, we are so full with your gospel that we go forth with good deeds that lead to others giving glory to our Father in heaven. May we be found faithful in our time as salt and light in this world. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.